We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Medconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also today we've got Jane Ricards of The Economist. Hello to you as well. Good evening, Keith. And uh, if uh, folks out there can tell that my voice is sounding a little different today, uh, well, this is how you know that we really do record this in Taiwan, because uh, that's from all the gunk that I've been breathing in this week in that great Taiwan air. Uh, have you guys gotten any of that this week? Jane, are you, you, you doing okay with the pollution? Um, actually, I keep sneezing all the time, but yeah. um, I don't know whether I need to see a doctor about it, but otherwise I'm fine. Well, but, I got yeah. the same sense. We just heard Gavin's doing great there in the background. So uh, a merry bunch, a merry bunch of black lungs that we got here this morning. <laughs> Uh, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about what we have on the show. On the show today, we've got a pair of business stories with worries about a potential buyout of three Taiwanese chip test and packaging firms by a Chinese state-backed firm. Uh, we've also got revelations about an Apple laboratory hiding out in our very midst, that being down in Taoyuan. And we'll fit in some politics in there somewhere. Always kind of a grab bag these days with politics, but we'll fit it in somewhere. First on the show, though, uh, we're going to start with a bit of news that's managed to get a few international headlines. The U.S. government has announced plans to sell a bundle of weaponry and equipment to Taiwan worth about $1.8 billion. This is the first arms sales in four years between the U.S. and Taiwan. Uh, so seen as something as a, of a breakthrough by some, but still uh, many observers are lamenting that uh, even after four years, the sale does not include some of the key military hardware Taiwan was looking for. Uh, but before we get into what was not in the package, let's uh, give it its due and start with what was in the package. Uh, Gavin, tell us about that. Yeah, the arms package consisted of two of the four FFG-7 class guided missile frigates that the U.S. authorized to be transferred to Taiwan exactly a year ago, and also associated materials for those vessels, 36 AAV-7 assault amphibious vehicles for the Marine Corps here in Taiwan, anti-aircraft, anti-armor, and anti-basically tank missiles. All right. There's a bunch of other stuff as well. I mean, seriously, but it gets rather technical. All right. If you see what I mean. <laughs> the key here, there, uh, for uh, people that don't necessarily know what all that stuff means, the key here is that this was all stuff that was expected, we've known about for a long time. Yeah, it wasn't nothing surprising here. There was no sort of super duper airplanes or super super secret submarines. It was and just those are the two things that Taiwan really wanted: is well, uh, the F sixteen CD fighters and a help with uh, the indigenous electric submarines uh, development of that. Yeah, that was never going to come though. This this was a this like I said, it was a year ago exactly to the day that the U.S. Congress actually was given notification of the transfer of the frigates, the two for the four frigates. They were offered four. Taiwan wanted two. Mm -hmm. So that's how that happened. Now, the U.S. Congress now has 30 days to review this sale, but is unlikely to raise any objections, of course, due to the fact that Washington and Beijing are having a bit of a spat at the moment about islands or non-islands in the South China Sea. So it's going to go through Congress pretty much unaffected. So, yeah, perhaps that's a part of... Uh, what made this deal possible. Uh, Jane, uh, is what strikes you about this deal? 
Okay, what strikes me about the deal is that we've it's it's muted in terms of um, Sino-US relations. Um, it's very muted, um, very low-key deal from the US, but China's also giving quite a low-key reaction. Like if you remember in 2010, China suspended military um, contacts with the US over the Taiwanese arms sales, which was worth roughly $6.4 billion. Um, this time around, the US is only selling $1.83 billion, and as Gavin pointed out, none of the weaponry is really a game changer. It didn't really include the aircraft, F-16 CDs aircraft or anything to do with the submarines. Um, and China has not suspended military contacts. It's threatened to sanction defence companies, but they rarely follow through on that. And I think the Chinese reaction is also is low-key, as I said. Um, I think that's because of the election, and I think China thinks if it gives a too strong reaction, voters will just turn out more for the DPP. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, though, to the next story, let's uh, touch on another flashpoint in regional politics that did some flashing this week. Taiwan's interior minister, Chen Wei-zhen, uh, paid a little visit to Taiping Island, that is Taiwan's toehold in the South China Sea. He was there to preside over the opening of a renovated wharf and a newly constructed lighthouse. Now, of course, China's own actions to beef up the uh, infrastructure of their islands, rocks, reefs, uh, whatever you want to call them, in the area. Uh, those, of course, uh, have been a huge source of anxiety for the other nations uh, with overlapping regional claims in the South China Sea. Uh, and it looks like one of those claimants, uh, Vietnam didn't take too kindly to Taiwan's move. Uh, they, they, they made some rather strongly worded statements about it earlier this week. Uh, but, Jane, uh, it looks like Taiwan, uh, you know, beefing up its presence on Taiping Island probably was not directed against Vietnam. Rather, it had more to do with uh, ongoing UN arbitration. Yes, that's my understanding of the situation, Keith, that the Philippines, acting on the advice of its lawyers, said in the memorial that um, Taiping Island is a reef, not an island, which means under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS, as a reef, it would not be entitled to 200 nautical miles of an exclusive economic zone. So that threatens Taiwan's interests. And as Taiwan's not a member of the UN too, it's actually been excluded from the arbitration process which is also worrying for Taiwan. So I think that the Interior Minister's visit had a twofold purpose. It was to reinforce Taiwan's sovereignty and it was to draw attention to the fact that Taiping is an island, not a reef. Mm. And if you look at what government officials are saying, they're pointing out that all these animals can be raised on Taiping <laughs> Island, which obviously doesn't happen on reefs. And they said including dogs for security, which um, I wonder how helpful dogs would be if a conflict broke out in the South China Sea. And um, Maying Joel was originally planning to go, but he didn't. But on Monday on Facebook, he showed off his lunch, which had sort of bitter gourd and okra and things like that, which had all been grown on Taiping Island. And again, ah. the message is that Taiping Island is an island, not a reef. Right. So uh, a lot of significance to that bitter gourd right there. Yes. Now, uh, it's kind of interesting to me, maybe I'm reading too much into this, that uh, Vietnam did issue kind of a rebuke to uh, this official visit. Do you guys see that as kind of just a uh, pro forma statement, or are we perhaps seeing that uh, there really is going to be friction between Taiwan and these other claimants, and not just uh, mainland China and no. these other claimants? Hanoi was basically going through the motions. I would agree with that. Because yeah. they opened a new harbour, which is a 318-metre-long harbour and 20-metre-wide harbour. And if you want to know, it sits on the southwest corner of the island. 
mm. just to be geographically correct. And it can host... So you can three... plan out your typing visit. Yeah, basically. It'll take about two minutes to see the whole island. But the harbour will host 3,000-tonne ROC Navy and Coast Guard vessels, which boosts defensive and military manoeuvring in the area. Now, when Taiwan opened an airport or an airport, a runway there some years ago, Vietnam was also hugely vocal about its opposition to the runway. Mm -hmm. So, basically, Hanoi's opposition to the expanded harbour is basically Hanoi going through the motions again about you can't build things on that island. Yes, I, I would add that Taiwan's consistently made it clear that it doesn't have any mil- that Taiping Island, at least on paper, won't be used for any military purposes. Like they've stressed that it's going to be um, a carbon-free. What, what's Gavin? What's the term? It will be uh, an island of peace, ecological preservation, and low carbon emissions. Yes, it'd be an island of peace, ecological preservation, and low carbon emissions. And then I think also a subtext here, which is sort of blatantly obvious to most observers, is that Vietnam is increasingly being allied with the US interests in the area, as and Taiwan is an unofficial US ally. Mm. So um, I reckon if it's, it's, I think that the Vietnam opposition is sort of standard and pro forma. But if anything did, there were any real frictions, I think the US would work to resolve it, and very mm. much the same way it has with the Philippines. You know, right. the Philippines has signed the sort of um, agreement on maritime law enforcement cooperation. Mm. Yeah, the US was very much um, keen for that because they, the US doesn't want its allies fighting each other in the face of China's increasing presence in the South China Sea. But you can grow bananas on Taiping Island. That's the important thing. It has been established. Uh, that's really the most important news that we've taken away from this week, I would say. Uh, but moving on to uh, the last story for this first half here and uh, getting into a bit of politics. And let's just start with uh, the most fun bit of politics. There were some lucky numbers this week, Gavin. Yes, very lucky numbers if you're running in the election. They drew the ballot numbers this week for the presidential election. Now, in Taiwan, ballot numbers are considered to be very auspicious. Mm. For example, if you got four... You wouldn't want to get four at all, Keith, as Jane would explain why. Why wouldn't we want four here in because Taiwan, Because four sounds like the word for death. Precisely. So, precisely. Mm. So there's lucky there's only three candidates this year. Yes. <laughs> really, because they didn't need a fourth number. Nobody's lucky for Right now, the KMT, Eric Jew and his running mate, Jennifer Wong, they drew number one. Lucky for some. The number two went to the DPP's Tsai Ing-wen and her running mate, Chen Jen-ren. And the number three was given to James Sung of the People First Party and his running mate, Xu Xinying. All right. Uh, any, any significance to any of those numbers? Um, I... Uh, who knows? They draw them out. <laughs> it's like a lottery. You know, I'm, right. sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure somebody read something. Mm. I'm sure someone in the KMT went, we've got number one. It means we're number one. I'm sure someone in the DPP went, we've got number two. That's good. It's better than number one because people will remember us. And I'm sure someone in the People First Party simply went, number three. That's right. We're at the end. But Holding it down. we're not in the middle. We're not Holding in the middle. Holding it down. There we go. There's a positive way to spin all of those. All right, and uh, moving on to uh, some of the other major stories for this week. Of course, uh, as has been the case for the last several weeks, uh, accusations about shady real estate deals uh, have once again been uh, dominating the headlines. But there was a glimmer of hope uh, that the campaign might move back to matters of, you know, substance. Taiwan's three presidential tickets agreed on Monday to hold three televised debates uh, prior to the January 16th elections. 
Uh, so we're going to be getting some debates in the mix. And uh, Gavin, uh, this is this is very fresh off the presses. Uh, now we have some dates for those debates. We have dates for two debates. This this came in well, basically Friday morning when the KMT and of course both the KMT and the DPP have been a loggerheads about whether when. If, how, how, what, when they're going to do it. Anyway, apparently this morning, this being Friday, December the 18th, apparently the KMT and DPP have reached an initial consensus on dates of two presidential debates. And the two debates that they've reached a consensus on will take place on December the 27th and January the 2nd. Now, apparently these dates were put forward by the DPP and apparently Eric Jew's campaign office earlier this morning agreed to these dates. And for Unfortunately, the People First Party says it might have a problem with the January 2nd debate date. Uh-oh, they're a little busy on that day? It's January the 2nd. Maybe they're oh, busy on January the 2nd. <laughs> we don't know, but that's, 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 that's all. But apparently talks are ongoing and the dates are expected to be finalised very soon. But of course we've heard the vinyl finalised very soon for the past three months. So Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Jane, I mean, um, so so this was controversial because they couldn't quite decide on exactly what venue they were going to hold these in. I, I think the DPP had their preferred TV station. KMT saw that TV station as a little bit too green-leaning. Uh, KMT had their own preferred station. So now they've kind of got it all worked out. They, they have a plan in place. Uh, but uh, for folks out there who haven't been around Taiwan in the midst of an election before, uh, tell us about what these debates are like. I mean, what, what kind of a role do these play in Taiwan elections? Well, um, they give a chance. Obviously, they give a chance for the presidential candidates and vice presidential candidates to um, outline their policies. Um, I, they definitely won't be game changers. Um, I think a lot of people, are, as we talked about earlier, would just probably say, "Yeah, right." But um, at the same time, it's a chance to step above the mudslinging and really um, delve into the issues. So um, I think they play an important role, and I'm glad they've sort of finalised the dates because it's very important in the democratic process. All right, so maybe we will be getting back to some substance. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see for another week or so. Moving now to a quick break. Uh, when we return, we are all business. We'll be taking a look at a controversial investment plan from a Chinese state-backed company and a newly discovered Apple Lab in Taoyuan. That's all coming up after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Jane Ricards. Jumping back in, and it's time to talk about the investment deal that's been creating controversy all week. Chinese technology conglomerate Tsinghua Unigroup said last week that it would buy up a whole bunch of shares in three local companies that are part of Taiwan's semiconductor industry. Now... Tsinghua has some state backing, some Chinese state backing. So the idea of a Chinese state-backed company making big inroads into Taiwan's semiconductor industry has stoked some strong anxiety here. So, uh, Gavin, uh, let's just start off with, tell us about the companies in question here. Right, of course, as you said, Keith, Tsinghua Uni Group is a, is a Chinese company backed by state money. And they're looking to buy a 25% stake in Silicon Precision Industries, ChipMOS Technologies, and PowerTech Technology. Now, those three IC companies are like in Taiwan's top five IC company list. So, you know, they're quite important for Taiwan's IC sector. 
And there is concern, like you were going to, you said, about China actually buying large stakes in the local IC sector, because. Certain people have said that Beijing is gearing up to expand its IC businesses simply through aggressive acquisitions of other countries' chip manufacturing sector. So here, I mean, it's less about undue influence over Taiwan, and it's more about trade secrets. It's generally it's about China investing in companies that states consider to be sort of slightly, slightly, sort of we don't want to give this technology to another sort of company that's not run by us.、Mm. I mean, it's not just Taiwan. I believe Jane, there was an, this happened with the U.S. Yeah, Tsinghua wanted to take over Micron,、um, which is a dram company. Uh huh. And、um, this U.S. government is sort of、um, it's, the status. I think is not very clear, but I think U.S. government security sort of sectors don't really approve. Uh huh. So now、uh, both candidates、uh, from both sides of the political divide have come out against the deal. So、uh, it's kind of become a campaign issue already.、Uh, so do do we think that this deal has any chance of going through, or is it kind of dead in the water? Well, it's the only campaign issue they actually all agree on,、mm. because they're both concerned about that's the DPP and the KMT. They're both concerned about possible adverse impacts resulting from Chinese investment in the local IC sector. And personally, I can't see it actually materialising because we're coming towards the end of the next the, the current legislative session, and of course after that there'll be the election, and then the legislature won't reconvene to debate this issue at a lawmaker level for a couple of months. Jane, is that what you see here? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, given that there's sort of、um, a bipartisan consensus not to have the deal, and、um, election season's coming up, so I think there's going to be pressure on the government、um, not to do that. And then、um, once the DPP comes to power, because I think we'll, we're assuming Tsai Ing-wen's going to win, I think you know there's even less likelihood of it going through.、Mm. But of course, this has irked the chairman. I believe he's, he's the chairman of.、Uh, Jinghua Holdings, which、uh-huh. is the parent company of Jinghua Uni Group, basically. Yeah. Now his name is Mr. Xu Jinhong, and he's been rather vocal about this. And he's actually accused some people in Taiwan of narrow-mindedness over their opposition to the proposal for his company to buy stakes in Taiwan's IC companies. And there's a great quote. There was a great quote this week where he said, "The deal will be a win-win situation for both sides." Wait for it. And the purchasing of stakes in the three companies cannot be likened to China trying to occupy or invade Taiwan, which, of course, runs contrary to what local politicians are concerned about. Hmm. All right. So the rhetoric is、uh, taken off, even if this deal isn't.、Uh, now let's just、uh, think in broader terms, not just about this deal, but、uh, more broadly the issue of Chinese investment in、uh, the. Uh, in the chip industry here in Taiwan, because I think that this is something that some regulators have been looking to open up.、Uh, and、uh, if you know, if it doesn't happen,、uh, the alternative might be that China moves into、uh, other countries.、Uh, so, so what, what what are some of the broader issues、uh, here, Jane? I've just interviewed a lot of economists、um, recently about you know the so-called red supply chain, those sort of issues that、um, China's sort of taking over. Parts of the IT industry that Taiwan used to specialise in, and what one economist sort of pointed out to me that if Taiwan doesn't open up or, or、um, you know, have more advanced technology in China,、um, other countries will do it. So China will probably acquire the capabilities with or without Taiwan.、Mm. Yeah, there's. Like I was talking earlier about the chairman of the Jinghua Holdings Company. He came out another quote from him is. 
He suggested that if Taiwan continues to close itself off from the other, the rest of the world, it will lose opportunities for future development in the IC sector. All right, now sticking with business news, but moving out of the brightly lit boardrooms and investor meetings, and into the world of smartphone research and development, which we were reminded this week is a world full of tightly kept secrets. Uh, one of those best kept secrets apparently was lying right under our noses in the Longtan Science Park out in Taoyuan. According to a Bloomberg report out this Tuesday, Apple has been operating a production laboratory in the park uh, where they're working to develop new display technologies. Uh, Tim Culpin is the author of that report, and he joins us now by phone to tell us what's going on at that science park. Tim, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here. Look, it is a very, very secretive facility that Apple is running there. From the outside, there's no indications that it belongs to Apple at all, uh, and staff around the area won't talk about it. I've, I've got multiple sources who, who know about the, the situation, and, and they don't want to talk too much about it. But what I can tell you is that going on inside, uh, Apple is building a team of engineers, uh, 50, uh, possibly building up to 100 engineers, to try and uh, build better displays that go into phones. Now, this is important for two reasons. One is that the display is, uh, it creates a certain amount of thickness in the phone, and Apple, of course, wants to make their phones and iPads thinner and thinner every year. If they can uh, develop new production technologies, then they can hopefully make those phones thinner and thinner. The other area is to make uh, displays uh, draw less power. The biggest draw of power on a phone or an iPad really is the display itself, and so there's been a big battle for years going on to try and make those more power efficient so you can get more battery life out of them. And what they're doing there in, in long time is working on really how you, you actually physically manufacture these displays, and that's a really important part of the process. Um, you know, basically knowing how to bake the cake is as important as uh, knowing what to put inside it, and that's what they're working on there. And uh, if they can crack some of those uh, secrets themselves, then they'll really have a strong position going forward because, you know, of course, they're facing competition from companies like Samsung, uh, and they want to be, be able to do a better job. So they've turned to this team of engineers in Taiwan to try and get that done. Now, apparently, uh, according to your report, uh, some of the engineers working at that facility uh, were formerly employed by AU Optronics, a, a local display maker. Um, is there any significance that this facility is here in Taiwan? Does this tell us anything about uh, the, the local industry here? Yes, it is. Uh, in fact, many people were, were ironically saying that the fact that they were taking staff from AU Optronics was a good thing for AU Optronics because it shows how good their engineers are that Apple would want to steal them. So uh, certainly that's an interesting spin on it. And as this, after the story came out, within minutes of us publishing the story, AU Optronics shares went up as high as 8%, so it was quite a big boost. Now, really, the upshot for Taiwan is that by having this lab in Taiwan, possibly in future... Uh, Apple may decide to then outsource that production, the mass production, uh, to Taiwanese companies such as AUO or Inilux. Uh, now, of course, the current display makers for Apple are companies like Samsung, LG Display in Korea, Japan Display and Sharp in Japan. Those companies have a lot of their own fundamental technology, and Apple has relied on a lot of that for a long time. But this move indicates that they want to build the fundamental technology themselves, similar to what they've been doing with chips. You know, they do have their own chip, their own designed chip in their iPhones and iPads, and that's manufactured by TSMC. But by doing the same for displays, it may give the chance for companies like AUO and Intellux to pick up 
the mass production contracts, and that, of course, could be very good for them. So perhaps Taiwan could play a big part in this uh, more in-house strategy. Yes, exactly. That's the whole role. Um, well, the theory behind it. Um, it'll remain to be seen how Apple plays it out in the future. But there's a lot of people who believe it can help. Now, uh, one of the most uh, striking things here is, uh, you know, we we get to have the opportunity to run a headline like "Secret Laboratory." Uh, so there is a lot of secrecy here. Is this level of secrecy uh, typical for Apple? I understand that they're still not talking to you. I mean, you went out to that facility, you kind of asked around, and uh, you kind of just got shut down at every angle. Yeah, I did get shut down at every angle, literally. I went to the front, the back, everywhere. Um, and even up to the front desk and politely asked a friendly receptionist um, who was standing in front of a huge Apple logo, um, you know, how I can get in. Of course, she said no. I uh, then asked uh, politely, who could I talk to? And she basically said, she can't even tell me that. So, um, look, Apple has always been secretive. We know that. But, um, you know, they have some projects that are even more secretive than others. And this, I think, goes into the category of even more secret, uh, even by Apple standards. And and that's probably not surprising. They're in early stages of this, this development project, and uh, they wouldn't necessarily want to have the light shed on them. Uh, of course, you know, that's not the case anymore and everybody's been talking about it. All right. So uh, definitely a lot of trends to uh, keep our eyes on there uh, for the the local industry here in Taiwan. Uh, But while I got you on the phone, uh, Mr. Bloomberg, uh, there's another story that kind of falls under your purview that I'd like to get your two cents on. Uh, And this story uh, involves the interest rates in Taiwan and the U.S. Now, we woke up this morning uh, and we found that Taiwan had actually decreased uh, its interest rates, not not by a huge margin, but, you know, uh, by an amount. Uh, and this, uh, interestingly, follows on news of the U.S. Federal Reserve increasing its uh, interest rate for the first time in years and years and years and years. Uh, so now Taiwan is kind of moving in the opposite direction uh, of the U.S., and uh, some people are surprised. So I'm just going to put the question to you. Uh, should they be surprised? Is there any connection there? Well, I tell you what's interesting about the Taiwan rate cut is that while the U.S. did raise rates, and that was pretty much expected, um, 13 of the 25 economists that, uh, that Bloomberg had surveyed expected no change. Right, So only 13 of 25, just a small majority actually expected that they would keep it the same. Um, the rest expected a cut of some sort. Um, 11 of the 25 expected a cut to the level that was actually um, was given. Uh, and some even saw uh, a larger cut. So it was really very, very split on what people had expected. But with the U.S. rate rise, which was expected but it wasn't really a done deal, there was a sense that maybe Taiwan didn't need to cut because we're really talking about a kind of a, 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 a rate differential between the U.S. and Taiwan. And so if the U.S. raises, maybe Taiwan didn't need to cut. But clearly the central bank felt that they needed to. Uh, they did express concerns about the economy, the, uh, the GDP growth forecast for next year uh, and so forth. So those various uh, macroeconomic concerns that the central bank outlined basically helped tip uh, their hand in favor of making this cut. So really what this underscores here is uh, Taiwan Central Bank is still very concerned about the weak economy. 
That's exactly right. There is concerns and they're worried that it'll continue into next year. And so they went ahead and cut, uh, hoping that that can uh, help the situation as we go forward. And the thing to point out is that a rate cut doesn't, the effects of a rate cut uh, doesn't happen immediately. It does take a few quarters for that to kick in. And so really a central banker is not trying to look at what's going to happen next month, but what's going to happen next year. And that's really a big factor in, in them looking forward uh, and deciding what they need to do today. All right. Well, uh, Tim Culpin of Bloomberg News, uh, thank you so much for all that legwork you did down in Taliuan, and thank you uh, for joining the show with us today. Thanks very much. All right. And with that, we are going to move to our last story for the podcast edition. Uh, This is another one in our other news series. And, uh, well, it looks like one lucky person uh, uncovered a cache of golden coins, but it came with a bit of a catch because uh, they had to dig through some muck to get there. This is quite a funny story. This is from the Gongnan Elementary School in Shinzu County, where earlier this week they found 317 coins in a septic tank. Mm. There's a great quote because somebody apparently who found them said, we didn't expect them to find the coins in there. Hardly surprising, really, is it? You don't keep your piggy bank in the septic tank, usually. (laughs) You would think that would go without saying. Yeah. Anyway, going back to the coins, the coin cash included 284 $1 coins minted by the ROC government in 1914, 1919, Mm. 1920, and 1921, and also other coins from Taiwan. These are from the Japanese colonial era. So it's quite a catch. There, basically, quite yep. a catch. What, do we know why they were digging around in a septic tank to start out with? I guess they were just they, were, they it were fixing the school's septic tank, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. And apparently they're quite expensive. Yeah, I um, would imagine some of the coins. Apparently, if they're actually what they are claimed to be, one coin alone would be worth eighteen thousand NT. Jeez. Yeah, I know. All right, so quite a catch right there. Uh, but there's a little bit of history here in Taiwan with uh, similar scores, isn't there? There's some gold. Many stories about gold being discovered or gold not being discovered, but gold apparently being in places where gold shouldn't be. Mm. Japanese gold, mainly. There were rumours in the late 90s of some gold buried in a car park, which is opposite to the presidential office in Taipei. And the government at the time actually gave some lucky chap drilling rights to dig a big hole in the middle of this car park to look for the supposed gold. Mm. Needless to say, he found nothing, and there was just a great big hole in the car park for several weeks (laughs) until they fixed it. Now, there was also another one about gold. When they replaced the Zhongshan Bridge some many years ago, which went down, which was, of course, on Zhongshan North Road, which was Taipei's main road for many, 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 many years, there were rumours that there was gold buried from the Japanese era in one of the pillars of the bridge. Oh, my, oh, my. Needless to say, they wrecked that bridge, ripped it down, and, <laughs> well, they didn't find any gold either. So oh, I guess well, that's these, disappointing. This school is rather lucky. Yeah. Yep. They, they're the only winners so far. Yep. Yep. Jane, I'm, 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 you've been covering Taiwan for yes. quite a while, still haven't uh, stumbled on your stash. No, no, unfortunately I haven't. I think a lot of this is just wishful thinking. Um, yeah, I've, well, of course. There's so much development in Taiwan that I think if there's any gold, it probably would have been uncovered in the 50s or the 60s, you know, not now or the 90s. Yeah, well, it goes back to the, was it Yamashita or something. I forget his name. He's, he was a J- Japanese general in Southeast yes. Asia during the Second World War. And he, of course, did stash gold in the Philippines. Because gold was found in the Philippines. So that's where all the rumours started about maybe he put some gold in Taiwan. So we've we've really missed the boat on that one, it sounds like. Yeah, but I checked my toilet system this morning and didn't find anything. Oh, it's too bad. All right. Well, septic tanks... (laughs) 
Uh, you did all that digging for nothing, yes. man. The real chump here. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, hopefully our, our, our listeners uh, will let us know if you find anything in your septic tank. Uh, share the news. We'd love to hear about it. Don't tell us about the other stuff you find there, though. We don't want to know about that. Moving on to the end of the show, we are done for today. You can send us thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. You can also let me know what you think through Twitter. You can tweet at Keith Menconi. I've uh, been on there recently, just very recently, just starting out. And uh, that's it for me for a couple of weeks, actually. Uh, We're going to be handing over the reins to Gavin for the next two weeks. I'm going to be on vacation, so back just a little bit before the election. Uh, So signing off here from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thanks, Gavin. Yeah, goodbye. And Jane Ricards. Thanks, Jane. Good night, Keith. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.